Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Rather than the other lads from Wickham. So it's good to be here. This is round two, so it might be different. And uh, I think we finish about three o'clock. <laughs> He's already looking at his watch. So there's a match on. Tough, <laughs> isn't it? Arsenal and Man City. <laughs> so it's good to see you. Uh, as I say, I'm from Middlesbrough. And uh, two things I want to share with you before I start. is One is um, I've travelled a long way. Uh, not to tell you a lie, because some people think you're lying or you're bending the truth a bit. But uh, I haven't travelled a long way. Uh, Saturday nights are usually amazing for me to be with my family. Um, who I love dearly, Natasha and uh, Boaz and Caleb's at uni in London. But also, I'm a Borough Scout. I'm a Middlesbrough Scout, so I go looking around with footballers, and so I like doing that as well. Um, so I haven't come all this way alive because I could go a mile away from my house yesterday afternoon, told a load of lies, then went to the football this morning, told everyone lies that Sunderland and Newcastle were better than Middlesbrough. <laughs> And then went home and had a great time with my family. But I don't choose to do that, and there's a reason why, you'll find out in a minute. So I don't lie, I want to tell you the truth. And um, the other thing is I don't boast about anything. In fact, my book, when my friends in in prison, when it first came out, um, they read my book, and a lot of my friends were in jail who read it first, and put 40,000 copies in the prisons. And uh, it's read, been read by over a million and a half people in prison. It's in uh, Arabic and Polish and Finnish now. And, but my friend said to me, Graham, where's the time when we were at West Ham or Millwall or we, you know, we put the coach driver in the, in the boots and took his coach up him? Where are all them stories? And I said, well, it's not about them stories. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and how Jesus can change your life. And one of the things I forgot to mention this morning was when I got to know Jesus, I started to understand that. Uh, I understood the scriptures. I do a lot of uh, uh, talks and, uh, on, the, on the gospels around the country and, and share my story, usually on a Saturday night, and then we have an outreach and I speak on the morning at the church. But one of the things I realized is that physical food is not enough. And uh, I was 13 stone when I went to church, by the way, but like Terry said, there's cake and tea afterwards. <laughs> Everywhere you go, there's food. <laughs> yeah, there's food. And, uh, but in John 6, 26, it says that um, Jesus had just fed many people, thousands of people. I know it says 5,000, but many people had been fed. And then they went looking for him. And he said to them in verse 26, you haven't come looking for me because of the, the signs and the wonders and the miraculous things that were happening, you've come because your belly was full. And I hope after this morning you can leave here with your spiritual heart full because it's that that needs to help others and you become Christ to others. In um, August the 9th, 1996, I went into a coma I, I was living on a bench and I fell un- unconscious, not far from a bench in the heart of Middlesbrough Town Centre. 
where I grew up. I was born in TS1, which is the heart of Middlesbrough, town centre. I lived on a council estate. But I went into this coma where I'd been living on the spence as a tramp. I was a, a crack addict. I, I injected heroin. I smoked alcohol. As much, uh, I drank alcohol as much as I could. I even snorted paracetamol. It didn't do it to me, I just didn't get a headache. So I was in... Is that because I spoke fast then? You didn't get it. I, I can't believe it, a sit innovation. Anyway, this is a hard audience, brother. So I'm taking it, you can't understand my accent. Listen, up here, I look like a lovely man in the car park. I'm just a big fat northerner, right? <laughs> I've got a few left there. But, uh, but I ended up in this coma through that lifestyle of drinking and taking drugs. And I, I was at the end of my life living on that street. And I give up. And I remember looking back at my past when I was 10 years old. There was a stressor in my life. My mum left me when I was 10. Now, my mother was not threat right. In fact, my, my mother, when, she was, when I was a teenager, said I was a son of Satan. Nicky Gumbel heard that in 1999, that one phrase, and it's been on Alpha ever since. <laughs> How can I resist evil? And, uh, but my mother said that to me. Now, I realised as a young boy when my mum left, and my nana was poorly, she was really ill, my nana, she used to try to commit suicide sometimes and drink a lot during the mental institution. But what I realised is that my mother, she had it really hard. But she called me that because of what I put her through. I put my mother through something really terrible. And my dad, who was non-existent, he was a horrible person. He did things to my mum that you're not meant to do when a woman says no. And he beat her up. And he did them things. My mother said... The only difference between you and your dad is he, he hit women and, and you hit men. He was a coward because he hit women. And so he'd become this horrible person and one of them nights I was born. And my mother couldn't look at me really because when she seen me, she seen him. And I did not understand all this, but I'd come to the conclusion at nearly 12 year old that if I didn't let anything good happen in my life and I just let bad things happen, then I would be okay because I would never get let down. So I joined a gang with my friend. We joined this gang and the gang, we were in anarchy, couldn't spell it because I didn't go to school. I know you used to put an ear there with a circle around it. But I was in anarchy and anarchy was anything. And I should have been called bungalow because there was no upstairs because I was the one who climbed through the roof. I was the one who was opening the doors of the, the, the youth clubs and the, the, the warehouses, and, and I'd become very good at these. I, I, I used these, these became my best friends, and I couldn't handle confrontation in them days, but mainly because I had no education. So when people spoke to me, and I couldn't understand them, I just hit them. And that was a way forward for me. It didn't matter who it was, how, how old they were or how good a fighter they were, I wasn't, didn't understand that you could have a conversation with someone. If they didn't like something and you didn't like something, you could have a conversation. I didn't understand that. 
And the other thing I didn't work out was love. This word called love. And love to me became a man-made manipulation tool. So you tell someone you love them, and you do what you want with them, especially women. You tell a woman you love her, and you tell your mum you love her. I'm in Boston, and I'm in jail, and I tell my mum, I'm sorry, I love you. She sends me postal orders. I didn't mean it. I didn't know what love was. I didn't have a clue. But people tell you they love you, and they don't mean it. You might tell Jesus you love him, but you don't really know him. And I really believe it's my mission, my vocation, to help people to get to know him. So what happened is I went on this, uh, this life of destruction, self-destruction in my life. And at 15 year old, I was in the police station and it had gone from breaking into youth clubs and breaking into schools and breaking into warehouses and fighting in pubs to now being in the pub, uh, in the police station, when someone's died. And the police are asking you the question, we think you killed him. So when all that was cleared and everything went on, I didn't care. I didn't care, I didn't care about anyone. And by the time I was 16, I went to a prison, I went to a detention centre. But when I got out of that detention centre, my, my granddad died. And again, I didn't really care. My nana moved to be with my mum and my stepdad. Now, they lived 23 miles away. Now, on my CV, it's a good thing to have on your CV, you chased your mum out of Middlesbrough where she lived because you beat your stepdad up and robbed him. And there went there. She had to move. My mum had to move when I was 16. And she, I, I chased her out of Middlesbrough. And it's not a nice thing to do. No wonder she called me what she called me. But I didn't care. I found myself when my granddad died and my nana leaving and the house being sold. I was homeless. So I didn't really care about that neither. But I didn't needed money. And we joined this other gang, this Middlesbrough Frontline, which went to football matches. There was another bigger gang that me and my friend joined. And we started to go to football matches. I'd only been there four months. And I went to Boston. And in Boston, I became Jim Ardley and I... All I thought about was getting out and going back to these matches and being with this big family. And um, I was in there for two years. I got out of the bar still and I started going to matches. First thing that happens, I get my finger chopped off. I'd become like part of this firm that were no nonsense and they fought all around the country. And I didn't really go to watch matches, but I had tunnel vision. There were my family. I'm loyal to my family, I'm not going to leave them, I'm not going to run. And I've been hit over the head at Millwall with a sword, I've had my eye, this eye cut open with a double-edged Stanley knife at West Ham. Uh, I've had a, a bottle in both my eyes, I've been stabbed in the arm and chest four times. I got cut open badly there at Leeds where my muscle came through my arm. And um, I've got loads of little delves in my skull. And the last major thing that happened to me was both my arms were pulled out the sockets. So my arms were in handcuffs, but they were like that at this end. They'd gone all the way around. And so there were some major things. And the reason I'm sat here is because I'm disabled, because my spine's spending. But I didn't realise that wasn't what you were meant to do. 
I didn't realise that we were only the minority of people who lived in this country. I didn't realise that people worked, people were paid taxes and people went about and become nice people and decent people. I didn't know that because I didn't take any notice of it. I only seen with my eyes how I lived and how I wanted to live. I had a bit of a motto myself as a, a young boy. I wanted, I wanted people to know me. I used to think it was great when I walked through Middlesbrough with my gang and the police knew my name. I used to think it's awesome. You know, the lasses and the lads that are, they know, they know Graham's name. You know, he's this, that and the other. I, th I think now what an, what an absolute nut job. No wonder they call me bungalow. <laughs> I was an absolute idiot. And then the things I did to my mum and all that. But I went through this life, living like that, and couldn't see a way out. In 1990, I went to live in Wakefield, living in Wakefield. But I set about my business to do a different, have a different life. I've been in jail. And I thought, right, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to live in Wakefield, I want to live in Wakefield. I was only there three weeks, working in Lupset at M.I. Stores Catalogue Firm. And my mind said to me, what on earth are you doing here? See, we have to be very careful about our mind. We have to be very careful of what we look at. The three ways into the brain. One through the nose, one through the ears, and one through the eyes. Three ways that come in and affect it. And I was minding my own business one morning, cutting these boxes up in M.I. Stores catalogue firm. And this thought went through my brain, what on earth are you doing here, Graham? You're getting 100 quid a week, and you used to make that in 10 minutes. So I used to rob the factory. And then I got the sack, and I worked on the doors of the nightclubs in Wakefield, on New Year's Eve of 1990 to 1991, I ate an undercover policeman and went to jail. And in that prison, I had this breakdown. They said I had a psychotic break, but it was inwards. And I was like, a recluse in the prison. I knew lads in there. If you know anyone who's been to prison, you go to jail, especially as many times as I have around the country. You get to know people. And no matter what you watch or what you listen to, in prison there's no football fans. You're all prisoners. You don't listen to these silly films that are out. They're just prisoners. We have our biggest rivals are Leeds and Newcastle and Sunderland. I went to jail in Durham. I did about four or five years in that jail. And not once did I ever fight with anyone over football. I'd fight with prisoners over other stuff but not over football. And you get to know people all around the country. And I was in this jail in Armley and I didn't want to get anything. I didn't want to go to the gym. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want my cannabis. I want nothing. My mind had gone. And I'd really tried to change my life and it didn't work. And when I got back to Middlesbrough, my past haunted me. My nana's funeral haunted me. What I did to my granddad, it haunted me. What I did to my stepdad and my mum and 
what I did to other people, it haunted me. I could hear the voices in my mind. I was took into a mental institution for three weeks. They let me out, Dr. Majid, the psychiatrist let me out, said, you're a manic depressive. Go out and do the medication. My medication, when I walked out of that St. Louis, I went to Groveville, Bellevue shops, and bought a bottle of vodka. And some orangeade, and poured the vodka into the orangeade. And you try and crack on to people, you're just drinking orangeade. And when you get drunk, you don't know you're drunk. Everyone else does, but you don't know, because you're just normal in your head, but you're staggering, talking funny and talking rubbish. And I come out of that, that hospital and went back to that bench where I went into that coma. And when I went into that coma on the 15th of August, 1996, my mother was called to the hospital. And she was asked to come in and was told by Dr. Cove Smith, who was a consultant, now, he wasn't an enemy of mine, he didn't know me. So it wasn't an enemy trying to, well, I hope he dies. It was a consultant, the head consultant, trying to save my life. That was his job. And job satisfaction is getting people back to life. And he couldn't do it. So he asked my mum to come to the hospital. Now, that night, it went round Middlesbrough that I was dead. Graham, big Graham, has lost his fight to live. We've just heard from the hospital, he's been given his last rights. And my mother was, coming, was on her way to the hospital and people came to the hospital. And my friend, Lee Harrison, bless him, he's died now. He was a DJ, MC Lee, and his nickname was Hooligan X. He, he, played, he was a DJ in one of our top nightclubs in Middlesbrough called The Arena. And he played the song for me. And he sang, he played my favourite song, which I'd danced to many times before. I was a good dancer, believe it or not. I used to do break dancing and that. I had these black lads in D-Bolt in the Barstow when I was Jim Audley, teaching me how to body pop and break dance and all that lot. I still break dance now. I dance and break everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in that, I was in that, um, singing quite a lot and my favourite song of all time was a song by a group called Change and the lead singer was a man called Luther Van Dross some of you might have heard of him he, he sings a bit like me <laughs> when I'm in the car you sound great don't you in the car turn it off <laughs> Tell it up, oh yeah, I'd sound like him. But the lyrics of the song were unbelievable. But he played this song for me on that night. And people left the, the nightclub and went to the hospital to say to out to me. But amongst the people who came to the hospital were some lads off the street. Now they'd tried to tell me about Jesus in 1996 in March in the April and May and June and July and even the first week in August had tried to tell me that Jesus loved me and I remember this man coming up to me saying Jesus loves you and I chased him I told him to go away politely in French I think it was <laughs> but he went 
And when they came back again a bit later on, I said to them, there's no such word as love. It's a man-made manipulation tool. I, I don't believe anyone loves anyone. I said, in Jesus, there's no such thing. My nana sang about Jesus when I was a little lad. She had a cross above her bed. And she had a terrible life. So don't you tell me that Jesus exists and this word called love exists and chased them again. But they're dead. There were some of the people who were there that I was dead. And they came to the hospital. And my mum had got these forms and she'd asked the consultant, can you give me a couple of more hours? And when they came, when my mum was walking in the room where I was in this, in this intensive care room, these men came and said, can we pray for him? And my mum said, what good is it? He's dead. The man who's meant to try and keep him alive, who you can see, how can someone you can't see help? Don't bother me with it. They eventually allowed my mother to go into the room and pray for me. And um, the girl, who, what they call the girl who was up here, who came to see me earlier. Is she gone? She, pardon? What's your name? Joe. Joe. Joe's just been working with the people who came, some of the people who came to the hospital to pray for me. Sorry to put you on the spot, Joe. I see you're hiding now. Do you want to stand up? Only kidding. <laughs> so, but the, these people had come to, to the hospital and they'd come from Teen Challenge and they'd eventually been given permission to pray for me. And they came in the room with my mother and I asked them what they said and they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, give this man new life. And I came back to life and pulled the ventilator mask out of my throat, the tube that was in my throat I pulled it out and then I went back to sleep and my mum got the consultant he come back and he said wow he's made a remarkable recovery <laughs> he didn't know about Jesus until I got to meet him and I'm positive he knew Jesus but the thing is is the next day I woke up and when my mum told me that story I said to her what does Jesus want to know about a scumbag like me for I thought he only liked nice people. People didn't do what I did. And my mum said, I don't know, son, you'll have to ask them. So I did, started asking them. But in that hospital, I was there for seven weeks. I had three lots of people come to see me. These Christian men and other Christian people who went to church, they'd come to see me. I didn't mind them coming. They brought lovely sandwiches and crisps and sweets and lemonade. I loved it. Every day they came. Yeah, bring some more. <laughs> I like prong cocktail sandwiches, please. And crisps and chocolate. Just this is my shopping list, by the way, for you guys. I'll be here at Christmas, by the way. This sounds great. <laughs> so um, I like fruitcake, by the way, if you can get me some of that. So I, um, so I didn't mind them coming. But they'd tell me about this Jesus fella. And then I didn't mind that because I just switched off a bit when they started talking about Jesus. But then I had these other lads come who we were off the street after the years ago at the football matches. And they say, right, Graham, the plan is we're going to get you in the gym. We're gonna, like my, some of my mates own designer shops. We're going to get you some clothes and people have already donated that we're going to do for you. And then we'll get you a job. The job that we're going to get me was debt collecting or travelling, doing some muscle, whatever, you know, with me good looks and me... 
I used to be, I'm built different now. I used to be built like that. Now I'm built like that. <laughs> I used to be a big fella. I'm good looking as well, but, uh, but hey, I'm married now, by the way, to Natasha. <laughs> I know you might be sat there thinking, but he looks like a good catch. But I'm married now with two boys, so I'm now happily married, by the way, 24 and a half years. But, um, so, but I had them coming to tell me that. I didn't want that. But then I had these other lads coming who I was on the street with, drinking and taking drugs with. And they bring the bag, you might have seen them in them bags that you can't see through, just a carrier bag, not a Lacoste bag at all. Just a carrier bag out of, uh, you have to buy them now, don't you? So there's these carrier bags. And inside they said there's a bottle of white lightning, three, three spliffs, that's joints. So I don't mean chicken joints, I mean, <laughs> no weed, but there's cannabis then. And, uh, and there's some other bits and bobs here. I didn't want that neither. But I didn't know what I wanted. And to be fair, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I'd come from. I didn't know where I was going. But I knew one thing in that hospital. I knew that I knew that I was never going to drink again. I was never going to take drugs and I was never going to smoke. Ever. I knew that. I just knew it. But I didn't know about the violence and I didn't know about the robberies. I had to think, how am I going to live financially? All them things were like miles away from me. And uh, I was released from hospital after seven weeks and I went back to live in the council estate in Winniebanks, not far from where Joe lived. Do you want to stand up, Joe? Only kidding. So, um, so I lived in Winniebanks on Eckert Avenue when we faced the year 19. And um, one night I was there, I'd only been out of hospital a couple of nights and there was a car burnt out up the top, just outside our house on the field. And there was a load of kids there drinking cheap wine, smoking drugs. And I wanted to help them. So I went downstairs on my bum, because I couldn't walk, I climbed stairs, went out with my two walking sticks. And I went up to them, 13 stone, good looking though. And I was <laughs> trying to convince you that, Anna. But <laughs> so I get there and I go to them, which is like for me to that window away from my door. I went, listen, you've got to stop doing this. It's no good drinking and taking drugs and nicking cars. And, and they laughed and said, but, but you were the worst. So I went back in, went back upstairs on my bum, went to my bedroom, felt really good. I was devastated. I thought, I want to help them. So I went back downstairs on my bum, <laughs> went over the road, borrowed the phone, phoned Tony. I said, Tony, can you go and get them Christian men? And when Tony came to your house, he came. <laughs> so he went to their houses and came with the tea and that, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I will come. Because <laughs> when he said, come, you came. So uh, he went to get them and they came to the house and they said, what's wrong? I went, there's something wrong with me. They said, what's wrong with you? I said, I want to help people. <laughs> I told one family that. They said, you'll get over it, don't worry. <laughs> they did. They said, oh, don't worry, you're just a bit vulnerable, Graham. You'll get over that, wanting to help people. Because I've never wanted to help anyone, you know. Anything you do for me, it was a cost. You know, and uh, anyway, I, I did, I really wanted to help people, so I told them. They said, you need to go to an alpha course. I said, all right, what's one of them? They said, you go to this church, I don't mean this one, but you can come to this one, by the way. The one in Middlesbrough, bit of a joke, by the way. So I went to that, so they said, I said, what happens? I said, well, you go to church on a Wednesday night, and you get a meal, I said, I'm coming. <laughs> As I said, I started off 13 stone. Still good looking, though. But I got to, this, got, to this, got to this church and I thought, what on earth am I doing here? 
But you know the, the amazing thing is that, that night, I missed the first week, who was Jesus. The talk was why did Jesus die? I couldn't, didn't fathom it till I got home. That I, that's the question. When I woke up out the coma, the next day I said to my mum, why did Jesus want to know about a scumbag like me? I thought, that's weird. I didn't think, well, oh, that's the Lord or... Oh, the Holy Spirit. I didn't know. If you would have said Holy Spirit, I thought, did it come in a bottle? You know, I love, I love a few bottles of it. But I couldn't work it out what, what had happened. And I realised that this fellow Jesus, what they're saying in this live talk, is that Jesus died for scumbags as well, like me. So I thought, ah, it's good news. But I still didn't really want to know. But I kept going to this outdoor course, and on the 9th of November 1996, a quarter to three, I was on the Holy Spirit day, and there was a chance the bloke said, do you want to ask Jesus into your life? Anyone want to ask? And I stood up, and I held my hands out, and I said, Jesus, if you were real, and you loved me, then you'll come into my life. Because words are not enough, because that word, love, I don't, I don't believe it. It's non-existent. And in fact, I've got this bit of faith that you might be real, Jesus. But if you come into my life, I'll tell everyone every day that you love them. And I fell back into my chair, started to weep. And at that moment, I knew who I was. I knew where I'd come from and I knew what I had to do. See, a man and woman didn't plan me. I was born out of a violent night when women say, no, you don't do it, if you understand what I'm saying, case there's kids in. I was born out of a violent, horrible, vicious night. And yet Jesus must have wanted me so much. I must be special. So I knew I must be a child of God. And I knew where I'd come from. I'd come from Jesus and I knew what I had to do. 27 years ago this November, 10 o'clock at night, I began my ministry. The first place I went to was my bench where the prostitutes were and the heroin addicts. And, and I told them that Jesus loved them. And every single day of my life, that's what I've done. Every day. I was at, I, I, it's just, I, do, I was at breakfast this morning that beautiful hotel, thank you for putting me up there, it's absolutely wonderful, I've nicked all kinds, only kidding, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking by the way, <laughs> I am honestly joking, so I'm, I might have nicked a croissant, no we can, that's, where's that, no we can, but um, I, um, I, I began my ministry and I've gone everywhere telling people about Jesus. And the reason being is because I just know that it's real. Like I told you earlier, if you know the truth, the truth sets you free. But the greatest for Graham is John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. But verse 34 says that Graham is not a slave to sin anymore. But I am. I do sin. But you know the greatest news is? I'm not a slave to it. Because my Redeemer lives, your Redeemer lives, 
and he has took it away from me for to me to be a slave. I'm just a weak man. I have weak moments, sorry. Weak moments don't mean you're a weak man. In 1929, there was an American football game between Georgia Tech against uh, the uh, University of California. And in a fumble, a, a player called Roy, in a fumble, got all confused, ran in another direction. And he nearly scored a touchdown for his, for, against, his, for his own, against his own team. And someone tackled him and hit the deck. And in the changing rooms at half time, he sat there with a towel over his head, weeping. Weeping the strong man's tears. And after the half-time interval, everyone was amazed that he picked the same team that started for the second part. And this man, this boy Roy, said, I can't do it. I've embarrassed you. I've embarrassed the University of California. I've embarrassed my family. I can't do it. And the coach put his hands on his shoulder and said, come on, son. The game is only half over. And when I heard that story, I thought, what a coach. And when I read the stories in the Gospels, I think, what a God. What an awesome God. What a redeeming, transforming Jesus who changes lives. I'm nobody but a trophy of God's grace and I go everywhere telling people this morning in that hotel my first instinct was to tell this man and woman that Jesus loved them I told her a bit of my story and what I was doing here I was hoping they'd have come they're not here but they know the gospel over breakfast it was the greatest food they could have ever had. The bacon and eggs were nice, but the gospel of Christ is even better. Me and my wife, we live by faith and we go everywhere. Hopefully one day, if you ask me back, I'll bring her with me. It's an amazing life. And all I ever wanted was a life with a family. And he gave me Natasha and Caleb and Boaz and you guys and my family. And if you're in this room, and I believe some in this room who don't know Jesus, I believe there's seven people in this room, and there's 29 people who feel dry, who feel a bit washed out, who feel like you've tried to get the combination on your phone, you forgot the password. Jesus knows every password. And I had this vision, I want to tell you about it at the back uh, just now if you wonder why I'm walking around the back I'm walking about around the back praying for you and asking Jesus who needs him most and I know you are because the spirit showed me I watch the spirit hovering over you whether you think that's a bit over the top I do I could see it and over the, when I was in the back I seen a blanket of snow with some footprints in it and I wanted you to know what Jesus said. Every size shoe fits that one of Christ's. 
There's room on that narrow path for every billion person, every one of them billions that live in this world. There's room on that narrow path. And Graham Seed's favourite song that I sang and danced to so many times was called Searching. And in that lyrics, which I sang and listened to many, many, many times, it said, in the dark of the night, looking round for the warmth of the light. I must have been searching all my life for love. All my life I was searching for love and there's people in this room who don't really know it, who don't feel it yet. There's people in this room who've been hurt by love. And today is the day that you can get free and hand it over to Jesus. And I just want to pray and want us to bow our heads. If the band can come back, I'd be very grateful. I just want to pray. And I want us to vision. I want you to shut your eyes and just envision this. This is something I do all the time. Because this is what I see. When Jesus was on that cross, I want you to see this. If you shut your eyes and don't look around and wander around with your eyes because people might want to respond. But when Jesus was on that cross, he'd had the nails, dug him in, laid on that tree. He had the crowd just saying, if you were the son of God, get yourself down. He had one criminal at the side of him saying, get yourself down and us as well. And some a theologian once told me in 1998, do you know, Graham, there could have been 72,000 angels, swords drawn, waiting for the word from Christ. Terry said earlier, but the word, the mouth, the voice of Jesus changes lives. There's no name above it. And them angels were waiting for Jesus to say, get me down. But he hung on the tree. And I used to wonder why he hung on that tree. He hung on the tree for love, for you and for me. And if you're in this room today, Today is the day, not tomorrow. Today is the day when you can ask Jesus to make all the difference in your lives. You have been coming to church. Some people have been coming to church and you feel dry. You sometimes feel like the Holy Spirit is not working in you like other people. The Lord wants to do something today in your lives. He wants to come and firstly to get you to know him. There's seven people in this room who don't know Jesus. You've never asked him in your life probably, ever. And I want you to give you that chance now. And I do this everywhere. Everything Jesus did in the Gospels, he did it publicly. Everyone who responded to Jesus did it publicly. And I ask you to stand now if you're one of them seven people publicly. 
If you don't know Jesus and you want to know him today, you want to say that prayer that I prayed, I want you to stand. Let me tell you something. Your heart's racing. You can hear it's the best decision you'll ever make of your life. I want you to stand. You want to stand. But you're dead. You're going to want to. You want to. You want to. But you're not going to. Because people you think are watching, never mind them people. You standing will make all the difference in your lives. Are you one of them seven people who need salvation today? Are you going to stand? If you're the first one to stand, the rest will. If you're the first, you're the sixth will. I invite you now to stand. Bless you, brother. Bless you. There's six more people. Do you dare to stand and make the greatest decision that you'll ever make in your life? To begin a journey, six people. Are you ready? Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.